Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. This episode covers the out-of-town events in Season 3, Part 5, what takes place in non-Twin Peaks locations. Just a note, these episodes were recorded uh, in Season 3's case. These were the earliest ones that I recorded for my series. So back in 2018, on some different recording equipment, and uh, sometimes the audio gets a little muffled or there's weird fluctuations in it, so I tried to adjust for that in this episode, but uh, just fair warning, there's a little bit of a ride in terms of some of the levels and also some of the actual sound background quality. I'm, I'm not sure why that came from the original episode that I'm re-editing here, but uh, these were originally recorded for patrons, and uh, now for the public, as I release them, I'm trying to uh, clean some stuff up that needs cleaning up as well. So hopefully it sounds okay. The story sections for this week, uh, we might as well discuss New York right off the bat and say there's nothing there. There's, there's no New York this episode. There is one new sort of standalone location introduced this week. It's Buenos Aires. We see a box turn on and a little bowl, like a wooden bowl in this strange sort of basement room. And it beeps, two lights go blink on and off. And then it crumples up into itself in the second scene it's in. It looks almost like claymation to me. I think of, for some reason, it makes me think of like Peter Gabriel and uh, the Sledgehammer music video from the 80s. I'm not sure why exactly, just something about the texture of it as it folds up. With the South Dakota storyline, the FBI is no longer near Yankton Federal Prison. They're probably back in Philadelphia, but that's still where their mind and their work is. And the only scene we get with that aspect of it is Tammy comparing photos of Cooper and Mr. C, the old Cooper from the previous show, and just noting the contrast between them and looking at fingerprints on, on her screen. So we see her doing some sort of diligent FBI work here. And then as far as the Buckhorn plot goes, we see an autopsy of Major Briggs. Constance has the jokes, plenty of them. And uh, we get to see her as less of a, like a merely functional character and more just a quirky Twin Peaks character which is nice. And it's also nice to see the procedural aspect of South Dakota where it seems almost like a CSI show at times to kind of go in a more Twin Peaksy direction. It feels like this is the kind of thing that uh, Twin Peaks can do as a more casual week-to-week show versus if it was trying to concentrate and tell one story in a more kind of focused, narrow way. And I think that's one reason why watching this episode right from the get-go I felt like okay, this is uh, more of a TV episode frame for the return. We also see that uh, Constance finds a ring in, in Major Briggs' stomach. We'll talk about that in a minute. And Davis, Colonel Davis, sends Lieutenant Knox to visit Buckhorn to check out the uh, ding that they got on Major Briggs' fingerprints. That scene takes place in the Pentagon, but it's obviously to do with Buckhorn in South Dakota. It's, it's part of that plot. The Mr. C material in this episode is pretty sparse but pretty memorable. We see the doppelganger wash his hands in the cell and he flashes back to Bob from the finale and has an interesting uh, conversation with himself in the mirror. We later see the warden set up the phone call that Gordon wanted to happen. And of course, Mr. C knows that this is going to be bugged and he stares right at the surveillance camera and mentions somebody called Mr. Strawberry, which freaks the warden out. This is such a cool Lynchian moment, that kind of name that seems very innocuous, almost comical, and yet is unsettling in a way we can't quite put our finger on. And then Mr. C dials these numbers on the on the touchtone phone, and he is able to set off the alarms in the building. This has something to do with, like, hacking through a old phone system. I don't understand this at all, but apparently it's something you can do and people used to do. Uh, every now and then is like if you dialed certain numbers, you could access certain things. 
Uh, I you'd, you'd have to ask somebody else about how that works, but I heard that on a podcast. I thought that was interesting. The Las Vegas material is definitely the most extensive in this episode of, of all the different story sections. And from now on, we're going to divide the Dougie story into at least three different sections, uh, mostly two, but a few others as well. First of all, there's this home life with Janie E and Sonny Jim at the house. Then there's the debt situation where he owes people money. And then the office uh, life where he goes to work at Bushnell Mullins, an insurance company where he's a salesman. And that third part is, is definitely the biggest feature in this particular episode. The home life involves uh, something actually that happens outside of Vegas, for starters. We do get that scene where Constance is opening up Major Briggs and she finds a ring that reads, To Dougie with love from Janie E. So that's a sign that somehow whatever's going on with him has something to do with this larger story. In Vegas, we see Dougie Cooper cry when he sees Sonny Jim in the back of the car looking kind of sad. We're not sure why exactly. It's just one of those moments that's allowed to resonate without an explicit explanation. At first glance, Cooper's outfit seems very un-Twin Peaks, or very new for Twin Peaks anyways, his lime green jacket and the khakis. But if you think about it, they're kind of the colors of the Twin Peaks title, like the actual title in the credit sequence. And I noticed that because his tie is definitely those colors. The, the brown and the, the, the uh, green on top of it and everything like that. Like, it actually looks like the letters of that title. So I thought that was kind of an interesting costuming choice. Uh, in the debt storyline, we don't get too much. Janie E. reminds Dougie Cooper to call the people that he owes money to and, and let them know that he has money now because the casino winnings. As I said, the main story within this section is the office stuff. So Dougie goes to work, Dougie Cooper, and in the plaza outside of the business, outside of the big building, he sees this statue. It's like this cowboy figure pointing a gun. He kind of mimics it. He goes inside the lobby, wanders around a little, or stares around in one spot. And then Phil, who's an office assistant, comes along and shovels him upstairs. He's got an armful of coffee, which, of course, Dougie Cooper loves, since he loves coffee. Up in the office, Anthony greets him, a co-worker who whispers in his ear that he covered for him. And then Dougie Cooper calls Anthony a liar when he says something about a uh, insurance claim that was supposed to be arson but wasn't, so they're going to pay out. And of course, Anthony is offended. Bushnell, the boss, is per totally perplexed. He calls Dougie Cooper into his office and dresses him down and gives him homework, which is a bunch of case files that he has to work out. I think having to do, well, I know having to do with the arson case. After this, Dougie Cooper has to pee. A co-worker named Rhonda kind of teases him, says, gee, maybe I'll let you kiss me after another co-worker was kind of hitting on her you know suddenly she's much warmer to Dougie or so it seems and uh, she kind of laughs as he goes inside the bathroom and then Dougie Cooper is on his way home I can't say goes home because he doesn't go home yet but he's riding the elevator down backwards he, for some reason he stares at the wall basically because he walks in and he doesn't turn around he doesn't know the social conventions everybody gets frustrated and shoves him out when he's standing in the doorway and, and won't get out and then he's in the plaza again. It's dusk, then it's twilight, and he's staring at the statue very poignantly, touching even the shoes of the statue as a cop tells him to move along. The statue itself is actually based on an image of Lynch's father. There was a snapshot from his youth when he was like a park ranger, and he posed in that position with an old camera. I think he had a string attached to the shutter or something because it was like a selfie, you know, before they really had selfies. And Lynch has mentioned this at a Q&A, and it's funny because there were so many theories about the statue. People thought it was a reference to David Bowie in a film that he was in. People thought it was to Sheriff Truman, thought it may be law enforcement in general or some sort of comment on the disappearance of the Old West. 
replaced by this kind of uh you know corporate culture that 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 he's now embedded in here just as a general metaphor as well for cooper's journey away from his life in the previous series to this strange strange life that he's living now but in the end uh, although all of that can resonate as it does there's an origin story that seems very biographical to lynch and that's that's quite interesting to think of we also see red balloons behind the statue this is a motif that keeps repeating we saw it in uh, Dougie Cooper's house, where it was just Sonny Jim's birthday, there was red balloons, and there was a red balloon in the 119 house, where, you know, the mother's screaming and the son's looking out the window. There's also a clock, speaking of that, there's a clock that reads 855, but because it's in the 12 numerical system, it has, it, the hands are pointed at 11 and 9, so 119. Somebody pointed that out on Twitter recently, which is fun, but I'm sure probably is just a coincidence you know it is five of nine that's a normal time to be going up to work the whole situation feels like cooper goes to the office as a picture book or something as if it's curious george goes to the office something like that where a character doesn't quite belong in an environment they go there and we see it through fresh eyes which is kind of fun uh, i also find this environment kind of appealing the glass dividers the high ceilings the wide hallways i know it's supposed to be sort of a or at least people are taking it as kind of this corporate, sleek, impersonal environment. But it, I don't know, it feels kind of compelling in a way to me, like it, it's perfectly suited for this. It reminds me a bit of Playtime and Shock Tati, which is a comparison a lot of people have made. Uh, it, it seems kind of jumps right out at you, really seems kind of obvious in a way. And Lynch is a Tati fan, so that makes sense, where you have this kind of quiet eccentric figure wandering through this modernist environment as everyday things go on around it and they almost seem kind of strange in that context and it's shot in a very very different manner but otherwise that that core image kind of feels similar in a way i also love the shot in the evening when we get the exterior of the building and all of the rooms are kind of glowing green through the windows it's just something really striking and beautiful about that very nice, wonderful, melancholy feel to it. There's something Fellini-esque about Lynch's Vegas. Even though in terms of flamboyance and grotesque qualities, it's probably much less Fellini-esque than the real Vegas is, yet somehow it calls the quality of almost more his black and white films than his color films to me. Like La Dolce Vita in Eight and a Half, a couple decades after the war, and things are booming, anything can kind of happen, people are a little bit unmoored. And I think maybe it feels that way, not even so much because of the visual qualities as the story, the fact that this is kind of where Cooper is. He's been through this traumatic event and now he's spit out on the other end of the world and kind of anything can happen and he's a bit lost wandering in a daze through this environment, you know. There's something Marcello-esque about that in, in comparison to uh, La Dolce Vita, you know. I also felt like there was an interesting 80s vibe to all the Cooper office stuff. Couldn't quite put my finger on it, but it just made me think of films in the 80s where the office environment is kind of this big, bustling, uh, usually presented somewhat cynically, yet still kind of attractive uh, place, as opposed to some of the stuff in like the 90s, say, where the office is just this drab, dreadful, Dilbert-esque environment or something. There's like a spirit of that decade to this material. I mentioned that last week in terms of the suburban home life stuff, but you see it here too, where I'd almost describe it as kind of a, a American optimism 
uh, applied to an environment that's kind of conservative and conformist, but making it, you know, but kind of a propaganda in a way for the American dream type of thing. There's something almost glamorous about the office environment in a lot of these films in a, in a, in a weird way that, like I said, I don't see in some of the later ones. Maybe they're just upscale offices or something. But think of something like Christmas, uh, Christmas Vacation, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, where it's totally like a cynical making fun of the office culture, and yet they still kind of make it look somewhat attractive in a way. And I, I see that a lot in these films. Also, speaking of 80s films, I mean, Rain Man comes to mind just because that's set in Vegas. You have a character who's kind of... Uh, you know, in, in that case, it's actually a clinical condition of somebody with really severe autism. In this, it's much more ab ambiguous, but there's a similarity there as well. And oddly enough, one other film that came to mind is the 1990 film Mr. Destiny, where you have a character who's kind of an office drudge, and then he has an It's a Wonderful Life type experience, where he like wins a ball game as a kid, and his, his life goes in another direction. Now he's like an executive at the company or something. And so there again, you get this kind of glamorous presentation of the 9-to-5 office life. And uh, in that case, that, that film certainly came to mind in part because Jim Belushi is in this episode as a mobster, a totally different character. But I also always get a kick out of that movie because I remember seeing it on an airplane when I was five or six. And I think being so impressed that I saw what I thought was a rated R movie. I think it was actually only PG-13, but I was like really excited that I got to see this movie. So I decided it was one of my favorite movies. And uh, I remember making a list on the beach, you know, writing in the sand with a big stick in the kind of hard, hard sand where you could actually write something. People would write their names or whatever. And I wrote a big list of my favorite movies. And Mr. Destiny was like number four or five. And I remember my dad looking at it like, you know, that's not actually that good of a movie. <laughs> I just remember bursting my bubble a little bit. So yeah, there's there's all of that stuff going on here. And I just find that kind of fascinating, like how Lynch and Frost, and particularly Lynch, since he's doing the visual design, how he sees office life, how he envisions it. And I think it kind of comes out of the 80s in a way, for whatever reason. Maybe that was the last time, you know, working at Dino De Laurentiis' studios or something where he actually was in more of an office environment instead of just his own home office. I, I don't know. Or just being in his 30s and 40s, you know, taking in the pop culture at that time, that's when it made an impression on him. But it does feel like it belongs more to that era's depiction of that type of environment than, than today's. I do love that final moment of the episode where Cooper is touching the statue's shoes and Windswept is playing. It really comes together for me as, 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 a, uh, as an expression of the more poignant side of Dougie's story. You know, this is an episode that begins with him crying as he watches his son in the car, and it has a lot of comedy in between, but it ends on this note of him touching the shoes, and you just find yourself wondering, like, what's going on here? Uh, is is he in the moment? Is he looking for something? Is he remembering something? Is he trying to remember something? You just don't really know, and it kind of points to how this character is somebody we're with through the storyline, and you're not, we're not totally with them. We don't quite know what's going on. We're seeing things sort of through their eyes, but also sort of not. And it's just this ambiguous relationship between us and this incarnation of this character, which in itself is something really fascinating about the return. In the assassination plot, the hitmen call Lorraine. She texts the, you know, Argentina or Argent on her Blackberry. The hitmen drive past the house later in the day before some carjackers do. I'm talking about the house, the show house where Dougie and Jade had their fling and Dougie's car is still parked. And the little boy, the 119 boy, crosses the street, looks like he's about to either disarm the bomb or set it off and blow himself up. And the carjackers uh, who've been driving around the neighborhood come by, they kick him out, 
and they blow themselves up trying to open the car. He flees. There's a dramatic music cue. The mother wakes up kind of drooling on herself. It's just a striking little scene there. And it's kind of the failure of the first assassination attempt. Maybe the second, because I guess the first would be them trying to snipe Cooper as he comes out of the house. So now two attempts have failed. Now, with all that in mind, the episode starts off with the assassination plot, but the shot that actually introduces it is the Vegas skyline, which we've seen a few times before as an establishing shot, with this different music playing over it. Something more, um, it might actually be a Johnny Jewel track, kind of like Wind. It's not Windswept, but, but I think another one by him. And it creates the softer, mellow feel to Vegas versus the kind of dry arch uh, drum brush or something else that we've heard usually when we cut to Vegas. And that right there just sets up the episode very nicely and sets up what Vegas is becoming. The the location is starting to blossom emotionally. I I think as soon as Dougie enters into it, little by little, it's like, um, trying to think of a comparison, like an animated film where as the character moves about the frame, the environment around him fills in or something is sketched in, the colors start to emerge uh, in, in that sense. Like that feels like what Dougie is doing here. And you get that cool shot of the Rancho Rosa sign at night, very moody rather than flat. When we first see it, it's almost like a parody of an advertisement. And when we see it at night with a little spotlight on it, it's more almost like an Edward Hopper painting or something. You know, it has a different effect to it. One last thing about this assassination plot is the 119 kid. Kids in Lynch films are very rare. We hardly ever see them. In fact, I would wager that in The Return you see more kids than in all of other Lynch's other works combined. Maybe more kids or more screen time devoted to kids. They're just totally absent children from, from Lynch's work uh, between The Grandmother, which is a film with a child star, and, and this. I think there's advertisements which have more of a child presence than any of the films. So that's interesting. I wonder what it was with The Return that made him want to incorporate childhood somewhat more as a theme. In the Mitchum section of the story, we finally meet the Mitchum brothers themselves, these two gangsters who beat up and fire the manager. They hire Warwick, his assistant, as the new manager. And meanwhile, in the background, they're helpers, I guess, Candy, Sandy, and Mandy, these three women in these pink, almost circus outfits who kind of walk around in a daze behind them. Candy's just making hand motions, like watching her hand as they're violently beating this guy up. And that's the one off-kilter element in the scene. Otherwise, it feels almost kind of like a straightforward crime movie scene, very ominous, no humor, no lightness, no warmth to it. You know, this is the part of Vegas that Dougie hasn't touched yet. There's also one more Vegas storyline I want to mention. It's not really a storyline, but a little fragment coming from something in another episode, and that's Jade and the Great Northern Key. We see her in a car wash where uh, the washer finds the key in the car, the little evergreen tree key from the early 90s that went for Cooper's hotel room. And she looks on the back and she sees that there is, you know, an address on it. So she sticks it in the mail. And I think this was the first evidence that, oh, okay, there is something potentially connecting Twin Peaks to Vegas because people were wondering if these were separate storylines altogether, like separate universes, I should say. If like Vegas was a dream or a fantasy or an alternate reality or a pocket world or something that actually wasn't in the same universe as the other stuff we were seeing. But this is the first clue that no, it's, it's starting to come together. That's it for this episode. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also support this work on patreon.com slash lost in the movies. Tomorrow's episode will cover the events 
in the town, the scenes that take place inside Twin Peaks. See you then.